Hello and welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher, and today we have on the line our frequent guest and contributor, Joseph Sabo. Joseph, would you like to say hi? Hola. Hola. He's a Spanish man, very Spanish, Hispanic, <laughs> if you see the video. I just uh, made that all up. But today... Um, oh, what? I'm Hungarian, yeah. You're Hungarian? Spanish. Oh, I do yeah. love tacos, though. I do love tacos, too. Like uh, when they said that uh, if you vote for Hillary, there's going to be a taco truck on every corner. I said, maybe I need to vote for Hillary. That, Who cares about her foreign policy, her economic policy? Uh, if there's taco trucks on every corner, every corner, she is getting my vote. I would do it. Like tacos everywhere. But it's American not to. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about free will. And uh, this is going to be more of a philosophical conversation about what is free will? How does it operate? How does God operate? How does God interact with human beings? And hopefully we could use actual biblical examples of God's interactions with mankind during this uh, podcast, right? Because a lot of times people talk about philosophy and how God operates and how free will or fatalism operates, and they don't provide examples. It's all theoretical. So it's, it's always nice to illustrate using the Bible how God might be thinking, how man acts and responds, and how it works out on a practical level. Right. There is no, uh, actually, look, there's no definition of will or free will in the Bible. So this is one of those topics where, uh, to, to some extent, it's going to be mostly philosophical, I think. Right. And um, so I would think that free will would be kind of a modern notion. Like when when someone's writing... A history. They don't have to explain every detail, how atoms work, how molecules work, that people had volition in choosing things. It's it's tends to be our default understanding. And when there's no free will involved, when there's fatalism involved, that has to be injected into the story for people to understand that fate is at play. So I, I would think that the natural assumptions when approaching any story is our own experiences in day-to-day -day life that we can choose between alternatives and we're not compelled and uh, we, we have free will. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the arguments for free will is actually that it, it most aligns with what we experience. We experience internally, you know, weighing options, making choices, thinking, making decisions. Everyone experiences this, this universal. So in order to hold to some sort of determinist position, uh, you have to come up with some sort of neurological or biological, um, you know, mechanism that causes you to think that you weigh all these options and have all these choices. And that just gets really complicated and kind of ridiculous. Right. So, so a critic would argue that, that our idea of us having free will is an illusion that's caused mechanistically that we have no choice but to mechanistically believe that we have free will. I think that's an uphill battle. I think that really needs to be proved. And I think our default assumption should be our day-to-day -day experience. And extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So, uh, free will, is it in the Bible? So, I would say free will is in the Bible. And uh, you really see this in the history of Israel and God's interactions, even God's interactions with mankind in general, that uh, he creates this man. And what's his first action? His first action to man 
after saying be fruitful and multiply is he brings the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. And, and what does, does this, does this signify anything in your brain? Does that trigger any, any, uh, parallel experiences in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, uh, the definition of free will is actually very simple. It's just the ability to choose between different possible courses of action. So here we have in the first few verses of the Bible, Adam making decisions, choosing what is he going to call these animals? You know, and regardless of if you believe that historically happened or not, you know, that's a completely different topic. But if the intention of the text is to convey something to you, I mean, we have here in the first couple chapters choices being made. Right. So so just the other week, I was I was actually on the phone with you while I was in the airport. But while I was doing that, I was walking around, I was pacing, and I was following my one-year-old daughter. And she could walk, right? And it's really interesting to follow her around to see what she's going to do. Because she's very curious about the world, and she's got her own, her own very strong will. She, what she wants is what she wants, and so she wants to go up to these strangers and look at them, and and smile and laugh, and sometimes bring things to them. And it's very interesting for me as a parent. I brought this creature into the world, this this daughter of mine, and what does she choose to do with her freedom that I give her? You know, I I could be like a tyrant. I could be like a control freak and try to stop her every movement and never allow her to try to make any choices for herself. But that would seem, that would be very cruel, first of all, and that wouldn't be very interesting, second of all. It's when you have children, you care about what they choose and you're interested to see what they get to choose on their own. And you you have to give them leeway in order to deal with that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I mean, as parents, Speaking for myself and my wife, I mean, you know, our goal with our daughter is to, to raise her in such a way that she's able to make good decisions on her own. And I think every every parent has that in their heart for their kid, you know, every good parent anyway. Um, you know, trying to trying to micromanage everything and, you know, like you said, not give any leeway and just rain down this you know, aggression, this, this tyrant-like activity upon them. Um, is not healthy for them. It's not, it's not going to contribute to their development at all. It's just not a good thing. And there's an interesting contrast there between, you know, the Calvinist perception of who God is and how he acts and what I'm going to call the normal perception of who God is and how he acts. Right. And so, the, uh, the Calvinist God, go on. <laughs> the Calvinist God is very much a tyrant. Very much so, a dictator. Very much. Yeah. I was I was watching this uh, clip by Jordan Peterson, and he's a psychologist. And I sent you the link, and he covers kind of exactly what you and I have been covering about the tyrant father versus the father who gives volitional choice. And uh, I'd like to play that clip real quick here, and then you and I could comment on that. All right, so I'm going to start the clip here. The mouth goes on, and then... Geppetto's happy about that, and then they have a little dance, you know, they, they turn the music on and all these little music boxes and they all play together and it's like harmony of some sort has been established because that's what the music represents and the, there's layers of reality that are communicating with one another because that's what the music represents and then they have a little dance and the idea is that, well, it's a good thing to let this puppet have its own voice 
Well, that's an interesting idea, because what the hell does it know? It's a wooden-headed marionette. Why the hell would you want something like that to talk? Well, it's the same question you have in relationship to your children. It's like, what do they know? They're two, or three, you know? They don't know anything. Well, so should you just, like, tyrannize them and make them do everything you want, or are you going to let them have a bit of a voice? And the question is, it depends on whether you want them to be a puppet or not. And if you don't want them to be a puppet, if you want them to grow up autonomous, then you let them have a voice. And you facilitate the development of that voice. And so, and, 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 that's, and that's what you do if you don't want a marionette. So, and Geppetto doesn't want a marionette, so he... So, Jordan Peterson's point, I don't know if the audio worked correctly on your end, but his point is that when you have children, what you're not looking for is a marionette. You're not looking for something that just follows your every command and move. What you want is someone to make free choices, that you want them to make good choices, you want them to succeed, and uh, not. you don't want to be a control freak, you don't want to be a tyrant. Usually the tyrants, those are the evil fathers that no one has sympathy with because they're very soul-crushing, they have this evil... Uh, understanding. If, if we kept playing that clip, he talks about that angry tyrant figure as uh, a repetitive motif within the show Pinocchio. And so I found this very interesting. I found it very relevant to Genesis when God calls Adam to name the animals and brings all the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. It's a very curious scene that we have. God is curious about what his new creation is going to do. He's ceding authority. He's not trying to hoard all power to himself. Like the Calvinist God is like, if there's one rogue Adam, oh, I'm not sovereign and I have no power and everything's more powerful than me if I don't control every single thing in the world. It's like, that's, that's not the picture that we get from the opening chapters of Genesis, which introduces Yahweh to Israel. Right, even... Even the giving of the law in and of itself is an example of, you know, that, that good father figure. It's not, it's not like God, you know, is raining down fire and judgment for every single infraction, right? Personally himself, right. establishing guidelines and setting up parameters and then placing a nation within the parameters and leaving it up to them to make decisions, you know, and they always don't make they don't always make good decisions. More often than not, they make terrible decisions. But what you don't see is, you know, what he touched on in that audio clip is this, you know, malevolent figure who is, you know, railing against everything, you know, every free action or choice or, you know, anything like that. You don't get any of that in the Bible. I mean, you do have instances of judgment, things like that. But you know, previous to judgment, there's always a, a prophet coming, you know, like we talked about um, in the, the last episode I was on, you know, speaking to the people to turn and, you know, relent and come back, come back to the Lord and all these other things. So, yeah, so God's always reactive and responsive and he waits for things to happen and then he judges. It's not this uh, preemptive judgment usually, right? And people will say, oh, if God's responsive, then then he's contingent on his creation. Well, that, that's, that's the biblical picture that we get when we're looking at how Yahweh operates with humanity. And he, he comes to Moses and he says, I want to destroy all of Israel. And Moses pleads with him and he says, you know, against my better judgment, I'm going to follow your wishes and 
we'll keep rolling with this Israel thing rather than recreating a new Israel, an Israel which might be more righteous than the one we already have. And so he's responsive. He listens to people. He responds to petitions as those petitions want. And it's, it's not always God's will be done. You know, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is not currently being done on earth. And even Jesus says, he, he, he opens up the possibility that Jesus's will would be done and not God's. And so he prefaces his prayers, his petitions with, not my will be done, but yours be done. Because sometimes God, against what he wants to do, he will do what his creation wants to do because he's in a relationship with those creatures. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that doesn't sound like like this Calvinistic idea of sovereignty, that God's controlling everything. And then he controls everything to not get his own will, but the will of a creature who he programmed to have a different will than his own, which uh, supersedes his will. It's, it's a complicated mess. It, it's just, it doesn't make rational sense. It, it doesn't fit with the Bible. And it really has to be forced onto the text. And all the examples usually of sovereignty... Like God, what does he do? He makes Nebuchadnezzar, he turns him into a wild beast. They say, look, that's him exercising his sovereignty. Well, yeah, it's, it's him exercising control, kingship. He's exercising power. But why does he have to do that? Because Nebuchadnezzar's rebellious. He's not following God's will. And so he has to respond and he has to punish him, uh, uh, humble him. And, and that's how he gets through to people, by by coercing them sometimes because they are rebellious against God. It, the whole Bible screams of free will. Even these proof texts that people want to use against free will, they presuppose, when, you, when you're reading the context, it presupposes free will, rebellion, people not doing what God wants. And God gets frustrated in the Bible. He says, how long will Israel reject me? How long? Right, it's not God's choice that Israel rejected him. You can't you can't want something and then bemoan it happening for hundreds of years. I mean, that's just illogical. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And mm. also the the instance with Nebuchadnezzar, I've heard people say that uh you know that God violated Nebuchadnezzar's free will by turning him into an animal. So I think I think we should touch on you know, is that even possible to violate someone's will? <clears throat> and Bob Enyard in his uh, discussion with James White, his debate, he brought up the fact that it, it's impossible. You cannot violate someone's free will, right? So like if you have a you have a robber, someone breaks into my house, for example, and I constrain him. My constraining him is not violating his will. It's not superseding his ability to make choices. It's stopping him from acting on his choices. So in order, in order to technically violate a will, what you would have to do is make decisions for them, mm -hmm. right? You have to you have to choose for them and then somehow input that into them. And I don't know of a single instance in scripture where that happens. Yes. And so like I, I might have a will of my own, you know, like you watch X-Men and there's these X-Men and they could walk through walls, for example. Well, I will that. I will to walk through a wall. I would love to have that happen. But, oh, Absolutely. cruel physics uh, <laughs> oppressing me and stopping my free will. No, it doesn't affect my will. Uh, my will is constrained by reality. 
there, there are realistic limitations to what I can accomplish with my power, right? And so maybe Jesus, Jesus doesn't have the same constraints. So he might walk through a wall uh, to go meet his disciples after his death and resurrection, right? So Jesus might do that, uh, but I can't do that. It's not like my will's being constrained. My physical ability is uh, constrained by reality, even though I could will all I want to walk through walls. If, if God, God could persuade me that I don't want to do that, for example, but even persuasion is not a violation of will. It's changing incentives. And so what if I want to go have tacos and my wife says, oh, but what about this new burger place? And then she describes the burgers, how juicy and yummy they are. And then maybe she might add in, last time you had tacos, it didn't go over very well for you in the aftermath, something like that. And then I might say, all right, good point. Let's go have the hamburgers instead. That's not a violation of my will. That's changing my preferences through argumentation, logic. It's, it's reasoning with someone. So, so persuasion, reasoning, physics, none of these things violate will. They don't change free will, right? No, they all, they all do influence, though. Um, so when it comes to like free will and philosophy, you know, Descartes was one of the guys who, he pretty much believed that our wills were not constrained by anything. Right, that nothing really influenced us whatsoever. Uh, th- that would be one extreme end of the end of the spectrum. And then somewhere in the middle, you'd have um, this idea that you brought up of influence, right? So influence can take many forms. You can have biological influence, social influence, theological influence, moral influence, neurological influence. You know, you could have part of your brain missing that stops you from being able to make certain decisions or think in some sort of capacity. You know, none of these are violations of your will. They're not changing your, your processes that you use to decide. They might be influencing what you're able to decide or, you know, swaying your decisions one way or another. But as long as you possess that power of contrary choice and you're able to weigh options and make decisions, even if you're in a straitjacket in a room with no one around and you're able to think and make decisions, mm-hmm. your will is still not being violated in any way whatsoever. And so I found it kind of uh, interesting. Like uh, I mentioned maybe on a previous podcast that uh, when I was in college, I, I got all my hands on all these uh, hypnotism manuals. And one thing that was consistent in there is that you can't hypnotize people to do things that they're morally opposed to doing, Right. And so when I was in Vegas, I actually saw this firsthand. I had a friend who, who volunteered to go be in front of this hypnotist show. And the hypnotist guy was trying to get him to do, do like uh, things that he'd be morally opposed to, like spank another guy's butt, right? He would do it. He was hypnotized. He'd do all these other things. He would not spank the guy's butt. He would do it because he's morally opposed to it. And uh, that's one thing about hypnotism. You, you can't really hypnotize people to do th- things that they're morally opposed to doing. And so n- even in our real world experience uh, with human beings, we can't violate one another's free will. I mean, I'm sure you could design like nanorobots to take over someone's body and force one man to touch another man's butt. You could probably do that. But that's not him choosing to do that. That'd be like a strong man grabbing him and then forcing his hand. That's, that's not quite the same thing as uh, violating someone's mental ability 
to choose what they want in life, right? Right. So yeah, so so it's interesting, and uh, you know this this idea of fatalism that everyone's fated to do stuff. The Bible it just doesn't read that way. When we look at Isaiah, the parable of the vineyard, and Yahweh, he says, you know, I did every single thing I could to get Israel to turn to me. I expected, I expected good grapes, but I got wild grapes. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to destroy all you guys. He's like, uh, screw this. Uh, I, I was doing everything I could and you still rejected me. What else could I have done? What else could I have done? Now I'm going to send in uh, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. You guys are going to go to captivity, exile. I'm going to punish you guys. Because you rejected all my advances. I tried to woo you, and you rejected me. If, if that's not like a clear statement of God not controlling all things, that people have free will to act and move and react, and that God believes it too. God doesn't act as if human beings are robots with only pre-programmed uh, desires and unable to be influenced and and uh, that uh, all you have to do is pull the right strings and then they act in the right ways. You don't see that in the Bible. You don't see God acting that way. You don't see God responding that way. He doesn't talk like that. And for that theology to be imposed on the Bible, it's just astounding to me. It's, it, it takes a huge act of cognitive dissonance, ignoring the biblical text, the biblical stories, the wording used in those stories. It takes a massive massive uh, intellectual dishonesty, I would believe. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to read the Bible and not see human choice. I mean, it's impossible. And I think that a distinction should be made maybe between free human choice and, you know, what we were talking about with influence. There, There's kind of a difference there, a little subtlety. Um, so, like I said, like Descartes would, would believe that our, all of our choices are free. They're not influenced by anything, right? And I think even the Bible speaks out against that. You know, you see God, for example, is the ultimate influence, right? And what is, what is he doing? He's working throughout time and space and human history in order to create a people for himself, in order to draw people to him, you know, interacting with us, trying to influence us you know, showing his goodness, pleading with us, um, tugging on our heartstrings, and, and yet still people reject him. So, I mean, how you don't see these things when you read the Bible, I just, I don't get it, to be honest with you. Right, and uh, I like, uh, there's a scholar, David Kleins, and he writes a lot about Job, but he also writes about Genesis and the flood narrative. And he points out there's really a learning period, a learning curve, when God's dealing with man within Genesis. And this is also pointed out by Christine Hayes in her Yale lectures, that God has a learning curve about human behavior. He tests things out. He sees if they work. Uh, Mankind rejects him unexpectedly. And David Kleins points out that for the exact same reason that God destroys man in Genesis 6, that, that they're wicked from their youth, is the exact same reason that after the flood, he decides never to again destroy mankind. What we have here is not God contradicting himself. What we have here instead is God lowering his standards in relation to his revelations about the nature of mankind, his creation. He says, well, we're just going to live with this. This this apparently is a fact about my creation. 
and uh, we'll roll with this from here on out. And God does, yeah, yeah he, he, has a, he has a learning curve in relation to man, seeing what they do, how they do it. And during the flood narrative, it's not anger that he feels, it's sadness. Like uh, when someone hurts you the first time, you might be sad. When they hurt you the second time, they, you might get angry. And we see that shift in God's reaction to mankind from sadness to anger, depending on how much and how often God is hurt in relation to Israel. Yeah, and in the flood, like you said, I mean, God's, God's promise to not flood the earth again is not saying humans are going to be good from now on. They really learned their lesson, and I flooded the earth one time, and now they got the picture. It's him saying, my, my expectations for them were too high. They're never going to be righteous. They're never going to be uh, worthy of not being completely destroyed is, is pretty much what's being said there. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, So it, it just when we're reading the Bible, we need to treat it with intellectual integrity, honesty, see what's going on, see what the context suggests, see, see what God's role is in the story and what kind of uh, feelings and attributes are attributed to God that drive the actions of the narrative. Then you're going to get Israel's most raw theology. And so, you know, within the last week or so, I've been dealing with all sorts of people on these Facebook pages. They're like, they're a heretic, heretic. It's like, do you read the stories? So, so you think, you honestly think that a person's a heretic if they believe these stories. Ancient Israel, in Moses' time, and even after, that's all they had access to. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had access to only these books. And so if they re read these books and they believed them and they had no access to your proof texts uh, over in Malachi randomly in the middle of the minor prophets hundreds of years later, they don't have access to your proof text about immutability. And so now these guys are heretics for believing the text that they have available to them. Oh, oh, such heretics. How dare they? <laughs> yeah, oh, they're all—they're all going to hell. That was—that was a mean thing of God to do to these people. Give these guys only this limited information without the whole picture. They don't have their proof text. Their their single sentence phrases that they could take in light of uh, Platonic attributes. Oh, and now they're going to hell. The heretics. Oh, all of Israel. So right. So when it says that Christ went down and preached the spirits in prison, what it really means is that he went and preached to everyone that lived before Augustine because they didn't know that what the Bible said is not really what it meant. Yeah, they had no idea. So they, they just had to be updated, updated. Right. And so I always think that's funny. So it's, it's, it's great. to it feels, it feels very good to mock these people because they're not expecting a mocking. And it kind of pulls them, it disarms them. It, it pulls them off their high horse. And they're like, I always thought of myself as a biblical scholar and someone's mocking me about the Bible. And they don't know how to handle it. So you put them in this uncomfortable position. And so people, yeah. I don't get, <laughs> yeah. I don't get, I don't get how they get mad about it either. Like you can have James White will talk about how, uh, you know, God predetermines rape for his glory. But you believe something that is in the Bible and that's not, that's the end of the world. I need to get mad about that, right? Like, even if even if they're right, like, whatever I believe is somehow for his glory, so leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So, yeah, if, if we didn't have free will, and the Bible's big on this, it's big on culpability, and it uses our common sense ideas about culpability. Like, is a robot, can a robot ever be culpable of a crime? 
Well, a robot's just programming. It's ones and zeros, and it has no choice. And it, it's it a robot's neither good or bad. I mean, we may, we might anthropomorphically refer to a robot as good or bad based on the actions and how they mimic how we would judge a human. But in reality, it can't it can't decide between alternatives. It has to follow its programming, and so it, it has no moral will volition. It's it's not good or bad. And the Bible's big on this. It's however much someone should have known, like the teachers, the teachers are going to be judged with a stricter judgment. So there could be a teacher of the law and there could be just a normal person and they commit the same sin. The teacher is going to be held to a higher standard. And in uh, Nineveh, God is looking at the Ninevites who are exceedingly wicked by everyone's account, just the most inhumane stuff you can ever read about if you read about their culture. And he says, I have pity on these people. They don't know they're left from their right hand. They, they are held to a different standard because of their knowledge. And that's God's standard of culpability that we find in the Bible. And we find it throughout the Bible where culpability is based on how much you should know, what you should be doing. And that's, what, that's, our, that's our understanding, our normal default understanding of culpability. And so this idea that God is controlling everything and no one has any choice in anything they ever do, that just destroys biblical culpability. And uh, forget for, forget you and I, our, our common decency when we're, we're thinking about culpability. What's the biblical standard of culpability? That's what's being violated by Calvinist ethics, when everyone is forced to do everything that they ever do for God's greatest glory. How are they culpable? How is, how is biblically, how are they culpable for their actions? Right, well, they're not. I mean, even even in the New Testament, it says, you know, in times previous, God looked over these things, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. You know, I mean, the, the standard changed based on Christ. So that verse is explicit, I think, in moral um, accountability based on how much you know, what, what light has come into the world. You know, what's the judgment of the world? That light came in and it loved darkness. So... Yeah. This whole Calvinist idea of God makes you do everything and then for some reason you're still morally responsible for your choices that you don't make because they're not choices, but you think they are, but blah, 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 whatever. It's just, it's incoherent babble, really. It's nonsense. Mm-hmm. So we're uh, pressing on about 32 minutes. Uh, we'll, we'll try to kind of summarize our conversation on free will. Uh, number one, free will is taught explicitly in the Bible. It's it's the underlying assumption. It's our underlying assumption of our day-to-day life, and it's the underlying assumption of the biblical writers. They write it into the stories. It's assumed there, just, just the way they express how people respond to God, God's uh, perplexion on man's activities. How It's like, why did they do that? What's going on here? What What is going And God gets frustrated. He gets angry at how people act. And so if, if the biblical writers didn't think there's free will, then they think that God is unaware of this fact because of how God acts. That's what you have to assume if you're reading the story and God's surprised at people's actions. And, uh, you know, like Jesus, he marveled at their unbelief. Why are you marveling at their unbelief if they are fated to believe what they believe? Why? It's, it's, it's just not written into the Bible. Uh, free will it destroys moral culpability and uh it really destroys 
the ethics of what you see God acting in the Bible, how he calls the animals to Adam to see what he's call, he would call them, God's learning curve in relation to human beings. That's spoken about by these biblical scholars that we already talked about, Kleins and Hayes, for example, where God grows and reacts and learns. He destroys people. He builds them up again. And it's, it's a dynamic relationship. So all these things, they don't speak to fatalism. They don't speak to everyone being forced to do everything. And even the proof text we talked about, even like Nebuchadnezzar, him forcing Nebuchadnezzar to become a wild animal. And these other proof texts where God tries to force people to do things. He forces Jonah to go preach. Jonah's like, I don't want to preach to the Ninevites. And he runs away because he doesn't believe that God controls everything. He doesn't believe that God is omniscient of all future events. And uh, he thinks he could escape God. So God has to recapture him and force him into the location. It's, it's a coercion that's needed because Jonah has free will. If Jonah didn't have free will, it wouldn't be needed. God would just write, okay, you, you just go there. there. There's why the running, for God's greatest glory? Yeah, I'd just like to add in summary, um, you know, the experience of human free will and that we make choices is so universal that even people that believe that we don't have free will still acknowledge that it seems like we make choices and then have to try to come up with some way to explain it away. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just a universal experience of humanity and not just humanity. I mean, animals, even you see, you see a deer walking down a path and it goes left instead of right. Well, guess what? It just made a decision. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, this is just all throughout the creation. Yeah, and so extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. If you're positing a fact that violates our normal experience, you better have really solid evidence rather than speculation to override our day-to-day experience. And so I I don't think that standard's been met by uh, physicists. It's not been met by uh, philosophers. And it's definitely not met by biblical linguistics when you're reading the Bible and trying to decipher what the early authors believed about free will. It's not present, this, this notion that everyone's forced to do what they do without their own volition. It's not present in the Bible. All right. So that will conclude our podcast. I thank you so much for suggesting this topic, first of all, and then coming on to talk about free will. It's a very interesting subject. And, uh, you know, I'll just quote Will Duffy real quick. He's a friend of mine. He says, free will is a redundant phrase. There's no will but free will. Yeah, it's a good quote. Absolutely. So uh, thank you for listening. If anyone has any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.